To start off, if you would turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. We're going to read something that Paul says about himself, something that he strove to do as he was preaching to people. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and we will start reading in verse 19. Paul says this, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win the more. And to the Jews I became as a Jew that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law as under the law that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law as without law, not being without law toward God but under law towards Christ, that I might win those who are without law. To the weak, I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. Now, whenever I read this verse, I think, intuitively, I know that what Paul did here was right. It's Paul, right? The apostle called by God in the first century church. I know that what he did was right. Becoming all things to all men is a good quality. But the other part of my brain that thinks a little more critically, that likes to question things, that's never really satisfied with just the, the pat answer, reads this and thinks, how is this not a description of a hypocrite? How is this not a description of a person who just played a part to get people to trust him and like him, and then in that way win them over to the gospel, which in my mind is almost a fleeting way to do it, right? Because once they realize this guy's not quite as Jewish as I thought he was. Are they going to trust him as much as they did? Once they realize, this guy is not as much like me as he made himself out to be, will they continue on trusting the message that he preached? So it's, it's interesting because I know that Paul did a right thing here, but I don't know how to justify that with what it sounds like. So are we supposed to understand this verse and say, I want to apply this to my own life? You know, we pray that in our prayers a lot. Help us to apply this message to our lives. And I think, is that the message that I want to apply to my life? That I have to kind of abandon who I am and take on the form of other people so that I can preach to them more effectively? Do I just abandon all of my personality in favor of someone else's personality and then kind of get this misguided trust with them? Is this something that I want to be applicable to me? Or is this something that even is applicable to me? What is Paul doing here? And how is it, how is it justified? How is it rectified? Well, there's a story that I'd like to tell that I think illustrates exactly what it means or what Paul means when he says that we should be all things to all people or that he was all things to all people. And this story takes place in Athens, Greece, sometime around 500 B.C., and what was going on at that time was that Athens was experiencing an incredible plague. There were people dying by the hundreds. They didn't know what to do. Um, I wouldn't call it COVID, but I would call it a plague that was killing hundreds and hundreds of people. And these, these were devastated individuals. They didn't know what to do. They had prayed to gods. They had sacrificed. They, they had even consulted their philosophers to say, okay, what are we doing wrong that we could do to maybe fix this problem? The interesting thing about Athens, though, is that it's been around for basically forever. Some people even call it the, like the birthplace of European civilization starts out in Athens. And if you look up how long it's been around, people will write different things because it's like, well, which group do you mean? 
Do you mean back when it was city-states and there were people surrounding that area? Do you mean back when it was kingdoms with different ethnicities kind of warring over this ideal territory? Or do you mean when it was a city proper, right, as Athens, Greece, as we know today? But the bottom line is this was a place right on the coast, good for trade, good for fishing, that was fought over by people and inhabited by people over a long, long period of time. It's always been an ideal real estate location. So over this incredibly long period of time, what happened is a culture moved in, they set up altars and temples and idols to their gods, and then if they were conquered or they decided to move away, they left those there. And then people would come in after that and they would adopt those other gods along with the gods they brought with them. So with every people group that moved in, there was a new layer of God worship that happened in this part of the world, and especially located in the central, central part of, of Athens, Greece. So we have multiple cultures thriving in this city. We have multiple forms of God worship, and we have all of these different beliefs, but they're kind of in harmony because everybody prays to every god. Why not? You know, if, if you're a Greek person, you have a pantheon of gods, what's wrong with praying to this one more that might also help with other things? You know, the gods were sometimes jealous, but Athena specifically, the patron god of Athens, wasn't really thought to be as jealous as some of the other ones. So they just kept on piling on more and more gods. So every traveler that came through was encouraged, actually, to worship their gods and then share them with the local population. So when this plague started happening around, again, 500 BC in Athens, it was natural that people in the city started praying to their gods, all of the myriads of gods they've collected over hundreds and hundreds of years. But the disease kept on spreading. So they didn't know what to do. They began sacrificing, sometimes even people thinking we have to appease these gods somehow. We don't know what's going on. We're not sure how to get this to stop, but it's not stopping. So they just heightened and heightened their god worship more and more and more to try and appease whichever god it was that was either causing this or allowing this to happen. But it wasn't working. So after consulting all of their philosophers and all of their wise men, they reached out to, at, the, at that time, who was a world-famous philosopher, and his name was Epimenides. He was a philosopher and a poet from the island of Crete, and everybody knew him. He was world-renowned, which, consider the world is a lot smaller at that time. So world-renowned is a little bit different than it is now, but still, he was well-known. So they reached out to Epimenides. They said, please, we don't know what to do here. We're struggling. We're dying by the hundreds, and our gods either aren't listening or we're not doing the thing they want to appease them. Come and help us figure this out. So he agreed. He traveled to Athens, wasn't exactly sure what he was going to do because he thought, I mean, I'm a philosopher. I'm not, I don't work in sickness, really. I can, I can help you think, but okay, I'll give it a shot. So he traveled to Athens, and he looked around at the city, and he said, okay, what have you tried so far? They said, well, we've prayed to this God, we've prayed to that God, we've sacrificed to him and to her, we've killed our firstborn, we've killed our, our sheep, we've done everything we can think of. And so Epimenides came up with an answer that was kind of elegant. It, it was simple, but it just made perfect sense, perfect logical sense. He said, if you've prayed to every God that you know, and none of them have, have answered you, or made any attempt to show you that they're even listening, then it must be that this is a God that you don't know, or at least a God that you're unaware of that is causing this or allowing this to happen, or has the power to make it stop. 
So they, the people were so frustrated. What do we do? I don't, how do you worship a God you don't even know? How do you, I've appeased all these gods to the best of my ability and nothing happened. I'm supposed to go to something ambiguous and ethereal that I don't understand. They were used to their gods being concrete. There were stone statues right in front of them. They could pray to this. And Epimenides is saying, no, it's something else out there. Well, they didn't know what to do. So they said, okay, Epimenides, help us through this. What do we do? And he came up with this idea. And now the texts on this section, admittedly, are a little bit vague. Up until this point, pretty concrete. What Epimenides exactly did to solve this problem, the exact rituals he commanded, are a little bit vague. But the historical consensus is that he told every shepherd in the town to gather their sheep, not let them eat for the day or for the night or for the next morning. Then everybody in the whole city would gather at this one hillside and they would let the sheep free on this hillside to graze. Naturally, sheep are going to want to eat immediately. They haven't eaten in a while, right? He said, we'll pray to this God that we don't know and we'll say, please accept this sacrifice and take away the plague from us. And we'll sacrifice every sheep that doesn't immediately eat. So any sheep that laid down in the grass instead of eating immediately they sacrificed on the spot. And everyone in the town thought, they're all going to eat. They're sheep. That's what they do. But surprisingly, hundreds of sheep actually went out, found a spot, and laid down. And so they did what Benedict said. They, they sacrificed these sheep. They constructed altars. And the plague actually stopped. It was incredible. It was unprecedented. They didn't know how this had happened, but they were so pleased that it did. So flash forward then, about half a millennium, and turn with me to Acts 17, verse 16. This is during Paul's second missionary journey, late 40s, early 50s, uh, A.D. Acts 17. And we find the Apostle Paul in this very city of Athens. Acts 17, 16 says this. Now, while Paul waited for them at Athens, meaning his other people that were with him, he had people traveling with him, they remained behind in the city, and he traveled on to Athens, and he was waiting for them to catch up. So he said, now, while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. So this city of Athens, half a millennium later, has maintained its collection of gods and idols. It's probably even grown from the time of Epimenides. There are just tons and tons of different gods, idols, altars, temples, etc. Verse 17 says, Therefore he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him, and some said, What does this babbler want to say? This word babbler here is spermologos. It means babbler, seed picker, right? He's picking up a little bit from here, a little bit from there, a little bit from this place, kind of like a bird just pecks at the ground, right? They were familiar with some of the things he was saying, right? They, had, they were familiar with a God who could raise from the dead. They were familiar with a God who created all things. They were familiar with gods who saved, but they hadn't really seen this compiled into being just one person that Paul was talking about in Jesus Christ. So they saw him as picking from here and here and here and just combining it into one thing. So they call him a seed picker or a babbler. Others said, continuing on, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus in the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak, speak for you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. 
For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. So the Athenians, again, going back even 500 years before this, they're curious people. They want to know what the next thing is. They want to know if there's a God that they haven't worshipped yet. They want to know what this guy believes to see if they need to bring it under the wing of what they believe. So Athens really hadn't changed a whole lot. Now, some people think that this section where Paul's at the Areopagus is him actually fighting for his life. He's on trial, and they're going to kill him if he doesn't convince them. I personally don't see that very clearly in the text. I'm not saying it's impossible, but it seems like Athens is just generally curious about what Paul is preaching. Perhaps they could have been aggressive. I don't know. It's not really relevant, but I just wanted to bring it up because either way, if they're seeking to kill him or they're not, the point is they've not changed. They're curious about his gods. Verse 22, then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. So about 550 years before this moment, Epimenides and the people of Athens constructed altars at the places where sheep laid down instead of grazed. And on these altars, what they put was the only thing they could when they were worshiping something they didn't know, to the unknown God. And that's what Paul is seeing right here. Now, you might think, well, okay, maybe that's just chance. Maybe Paul happened upon that, but he, it's just kind of luck, right? It was just kind of fate or happenstance that it happened that way. It doesn't really seem to be true. Because Paul, actually, I'm getting ahead of myself. We'll, we'll get there in just a second. I'm going to continue reading, uh, starting in verse 28. Uh, because as Paul continues on his exposition of the gospel and the truth of Jesus Christ's resurrection, he says this about God. For in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said. Well, who are those poets that said that? It's a direct quote. The poet that that is from is Epimenides, the man who 500 years before set up altars in Athens that said, to the unknown God. And Paul is making it very clear that he's aware of this history. In Titus 1.12, Paul actually quotes Epimenides again, and he calls him a prophet of Crete. Now, I'm not saying that that means that he's a man of God or he's a Christian, but he calls him a prophet of Crete. Paul has a level of respect for Epimenides, and he's very acutely aware of him, his work, and his history. So I think it stands to reason that he was aware that this event happened, and he chose it for an exact, specific reason. So to me, this story is incredible. It could potentially mean that God actually worked with the people of Athens all those years ago, who didn't really comprehend him so that Paul would have a foothold in Athens. Isn't that incredible? It could possibly mean that God actually participated in this event with pagan people so that later a few of them, because only a few followed Paul after this, only a few of them would be called. Isn't that amazing that he was willing to go through all of that effort for just a few in Athens? I think it's incredible. And it definitely means that when Paul says that he became as a Jew to the Jews, as one under the law to those under the law, to those without law as one without law, to the weak as weak, that this example of him becoming Athenian to the Athenians shows that he is speaking not of becoming that person 
or being a hypocrite or putting on a show. He's speaking of meeting someone where they're at rather than talking to them from where you are. Paul knew where he was. He knew exactly where he was. And he took the time to learn the history of that city. He took the time to walk around that city and see the things that they were worshiping to understand the people that he was going to speak with. He spoke at their level using things that they would understand. That's incredible. We don't have to be Democrats to Democrats, right? I don't have to go vote Democrats so the Democrat will listen to me. I don't have to be a racist for a racist to go and listen to me. I don't have to be worldly for the world to listen to me. But I have to know the world in order to effectively reach them where they are so that we might by all means save some, just as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9. So even in some areas that are antagonistic to God, we have to understand who we're speaking with. We have to respect them enough as people to learn about them and what they believe so that we can effectively reach them. We never know the footholds that God has placed all throughout the world, but we absolutely should be looking for them.